He had been in the artillery when he heard about the formation of the Royal Flying Corps and was one of the first officers to join. He had to pay to learn to fly himself, with his father's support, as the army did not then have funds available to train pilots. Joubert quickly took to flying, although the aircraft were so light and fragile that they needed a lot of care. Most flying took place in the early dawn before the wind had got up, and Joubert, like most pilots, had experienced the embarrassment of actually being blown backwards when trying to fly into a strong wind. On one flight, he had ended up seven miles behind his point of takeoff. When war was declared, Joubert was in command of Sea Flight in Three Squadron, flying a French aircraft built by the Blériot Company. For the journey, Joubert, like most of the other pilots, was accompanied by his mechanic. It was the quickest way of transporting to France the men who were essential to keep the aeroplanes flying. Joubert was briefed at about 5.30 a.m. and given maps of France and Belgium and sealed orders. When he opened them, the orders contained details of his destination. Along with the others, Joubert was given a revolver, a set of field glasses and a spare pair of goggles. The mechanics were issued with a toolkit. Emergency rations of biscuits, a bar of chocolate, and a pack of soup concentrate were handed out in a haversack. Advance parties at Dover had acquired a large number of cast-off inner tubes. Each man carried one of these to be inflated if the aircraft came down into the sea and used as a makeshift lifebelt. But the pilot's instructions were to ascend to 3,000 feet before starting their channel crossing, so if an engine failed, they should have enough height to glide across the channel. There was no planned sea rescue. The people of Dover cheered as Joubert and his fellow pilots climbed into their aircraft on the hills above the cliffs dominating the town. The contraptions they climbed into consisted of wooden frames held together with wire and covered in linen canvas, powered by large combustion engines that sat imposingly near the centre of the structure. Today they look as ancient as the dinosaurs, but to the crowds gathered on that August morning... These craft were the very cutting edge of modernity. Only five years before, Louis Blériot had made the first channel crossing by air. Now Joubert and the other pilots, in their flying machines, were planning to carry out a similar journey and to take up their position alongside the British Expeditionary Force. Soon after 6.25 a.m., on what proved to be a beautiful, clear August day, the first aeroplanes taxied across the grass and soon got up to speed. One after another, the pioneers, in their Blériots, BE-2s, BE-8s, and Henri Fermons, took off and rose high into the sky to reach the planned altitude. Then, in a line, each aircraft, powered by an engine that could only muster a few horsepower, headed off across the channel at roughly two-minute intervals. Their course was to hit the French coast at Boulogne, fly down the coast to the Somme estuary, and then head inland to Amiens. Not everything went to plan. A few aircraft were damaged when they came down in a ploughed field. One pilot got lost and had to land and ask an astonished passerby where he was. On landing in France, another pilot was arrested by officials who could not understand what language he was speaking and thought he must be a spy. It took three days to get the pilot released from prison. Yet another aircraft was delayed as its pilot flew around the Cap Grinet lighthouse and tried to drop his inner tube, like a quoit, onto the spiky top, as though in a fairground. For Joubert, the flight from Dover to Amiens took just two hours. 
The aerodrome at Amiens was a simple affair, just a cut grass field with a few large sheds, known as hangars, at one end. At this point, the RFC had almost nothing in the way of ground transport, were desperately short of spares, and had barely any reserves. Having made the journey, Joubert and the pilots of his squadron came to rest along the side of a field, as there was not enough hangar space for all the British machines. As the morning passed, an enthusiastic crowd gathered, waving flags and shouting, Vive l'Angleterre! The French had been doubtful as to whether the British would join them in their war against the Germans, but here they were, and the Gallic reception included throwing flowers and even fruit in a tremendous welcome. That afternoon, Joubert and his fellow aviators received another visitor, General Sir John French, commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force. A cavalryman who traditionally relied on scouts riding on horses for reconnaissance, he had little idea how effective this new fighting force...